Stage Directions. I'm Ashley Griffin, your theatrical Hermione Granger, and I want to try something a little bit different with the podcast this week. As a matter of fact, I might end up splitting this topic into two back-to-back episodes because there's sort of a lot that I want to cover. I really want to talk about fairy tales and traditional stories and how they relate to contemporary theater and contemporary storytelling. I want to do this for a few reasons. One, it's a topic that I'm really passionate about. Um, The second is it's come up in a few other interviews that I've done. Um, Recently, I did a wonderful podcast with Chris Peterson talking about The Little Mermaid, and we delved into a lot of issues and sort of myths surrounding um, the mystique around fairy tales and the way people tend to view them. I touched on a lot of this in my very first podcast episode about the power and importance of theater and storytelling and whatnot, but I'm finding more and more that a lot of people are asking me questions about why fairy tales are still relevant today, um, the issues that a lot of people feel surrounding them, and I just really had the desire to sort of dive in. And I don't really have a prepared, like, written thing that I'm reading or anything like that. Um, I have some notes that I want to cover, but I'm sort of thinking of this sort of conversationally, the way I do a lot of my podcasts where I interview someone only today. I'm going to sort of be imagining that I'm having a casual conversation with you instead of somebody specifically here and asking me questions. So I think the first part of this is going to be more about just setting some groundwork for the history surrounding storytelling and some things that go into that. And then I think the second part is going to be dispelling some myths and directly confronting head on a lot of the issues that people have today Um, I guess with fairy tales specifically. So with that, let me just dive in. I think that there's a really huge importance with traditional storytelling and traditional stories and storytelling techniques. I don't want to get as in-depth with this particular thing as I would because I feel like I cover a lot of it in my very first podcast, episode one. Um, So if you haven't heard that, take a break and maybe go listen to that one first. But in essence, I think there's a really important understanding that we should all maybe just establish to start, which is that stories are what make us human in a lot of ways. Um, Throughout history, one of the first things that an invading culture would do when they conquered a new group of people would be to completely demolish um, their culture and specifically anything to do with the written word. Um, During the Napoleonic Wars, um, which I'll get into a little bit later, um, when Germany was caught in the crossfires of war between Prussia and France, every time a new invading army would come and conquer them, they would burn all their books. They burned down all the libraries, um, everything to do with the written word, because when you destroy the stories of a people, you destroy what makes them a specifically unique culture and a unique people. So I really believe in the idea that when we lose our stories, we lose ourselves and our culture and our connection to the numinous. The numinous, um, which I also talk a lot about in my first podcast, um, is a word that C.S. Lewis really coined, which describes our connection to the spiritual, to something outside of ourselves, um, to God, to those things that give us awe about life and living and the things surrounding us. Um, so that, that, that the idea that the connection to the numinous is the specific thing that's special about a certain kind of storytelling. Now, all stories are rooted in myth. I'll get to this in a moment with Carl Jung. Um, like I said, this is going to be a little bit of a history lesson, but I, I love it. I, I get very excited talking about this. But all, all stories are rooted in some sort of myth. It's the simplest form of universal theme. If you go and see a show, whether it's a play or a musical or a movie or whatnot, and you leave feeling like, I don't really feel like I know what I was supposed to get out of that. I don't really know what it was about. I don't really know what it was trying to communicate. It usually means that the show or piece wasn't doing a great job of being rooted in a theme or it didn't even know what the theme was. You know, being a writer and um, being a director and an actor, um, I develop a lot of new work. And a lot of times when you're developing a new work 
and you're having a sort of roundtable talk back afterward, there are a lot of times when the playwright themselves will be like, I don't really know what the central theme is. I kind of generally wanted to write about these ideas, but I don't really, I can't really sum up what the theme is. And in essence, that's where pieces tend to go wonky is when they're not rooted in a theme. Um, I find that identifying the fairy tale or mythic root of a story that you're trying to tell can be a really powerful way to solidify what the theme of your story is, what you're trying to communicate. Now, I do want to say that there's a big distinction between a moral and a theme. A moral, in a way, is a statement. I think of a theme more as <clears throat> more as like a rumination. Um, a moral would be something like, don't take candy from strangers. A theme would be something like, how do you deal with the contradiction of safety versus freedom or fate versus free will? It's something that we're going to now have a conversation about. Um, most often the creator has opinions about it, but the point of writing a piece is let's have an emotional rumination or conversation on a central theme as opposed to I'm going to tell you this specific idea that I want you to believe. There's a very fine line, but that's sort of the way I tend to look at it. And I think that there's a really important power of stories that we tend to lose in our modern society. We are no longer a storytelling culture. You know, traditionally you think of, you know, primitive people sitting around a fire and, and sharing stories, but it goes way beyond that. Storytelling is the way that people would make sense of the world. It's the way that they would communicate important um, historical events. It's the way that they would communicate, you know, ideas of what make us human. And they can really affect change like nothing else can. Um, one of the analogies I love to use is that in the Bible, Christ most often taught through parables. Um, as a, I mean, certainly this happened as well, but more often than not, Christ wasn't standing there being like, you should not do this and this is bad. Christ would be, let me tell you a story. And the story often had a far more powerful impact than just setting down a, a blunt, you know, rule about something. It affects your emotions. It creates empathy. Um, people, and especially children that, that read and are privy to stories, tend to develop empathy on a whole other level um, than people that are cut off from that, especially through their development. Um, if you're listening to this podcast, I'm assuming that you're somebody who also loves stories and storytelling, so I'm probably preaching to the choir here, but I just think it's important to sort of set that out to start. So, I want to get into a little history that some of you may know, some of you may not. I'm going to do a very general wash, although there's, there's a lot more that I could say about this, but I think it's really important, I think it's really interesting, and I found more and more that a lot of people aren't as familiar with this. So, I want to talk a little bit about Joseph Campbell and Carl Jung, and again, this is a very general wash. I'm really talking off the cuff. I'm not, like, you know, referencing a history book here or anything, but Joseph Campbell was an incredible guy. He wrote a wonder, he wrote many books, but especially a wonderful book called The Power of Myth, which um, I highly suggest that you get and read. Actually, on Netflix, there is a, I wouldn't call it a documentary series, it's sort of like an interview series with um, I believe Joseph Campbell called The Power of Myth, where he's basically being interviewed about the ideas in his stories. And basically, Joseph Campbell wanted to, I just articulated that very distinctly, wanted, <laughs> wanted to f learn more about the stories of different cultures. And so he went around to cultures all over the world, both in developed countries, in tribal cultures, um, in cultures that had never had any uh, interaction with the outside world in cultures that had had tons of interaction with many other cultures and countries and whatnot, and basically wanted to study the stories that were told. And he found something really fascinating, which was the same stories with very slight variations were told everywhere. And he found this especially interesting in the cultures that had had no access to the outside world. So there was no way that somebody could have brought this story to them. Like, I think, again, I'm talking in generalities, but I think Cinderella is a really great example. A version of the Cinderella story shows up everywhere that you go, anywhere in the world, no matter where it is. Um, I remember being really profoundly impacted by this before I ever knew who Joseph Campbell was. I was a big fan of Disney movies growing up. I'm still a big fan of Disney movies. But for me, the Disney fairy tales became a gateway into this world of fairy tales and myth and storytelling in general. I remember going and seeing, like, say, The Little Mermaid when I was very, very little. 
And as we all know, I'm a total Hermione Granger and I love reading. So the next thing that I did was I went to the library and I wanted to get The Little Mermaid to read it. And the librarian took me to the children's section and specifically to the fantasy section, which in the big library near me had its, a whole separate room that was beautiful and kind of old fashioned. And so I, you know, I was looking for The Little Mermaid. And what I came to find was that most fairy tales, now The Little Mermaid is different because it was written by Hans Christian Andersen. I'll cycle back to that. But most fairy tales, I suddenly found there wasn't a book of the fairy tale. It wasn't like, here is the book of Cinderella. There were versions of Cinderella from all over the world. There was even a wonderful children's book series that was like the Egyptian Cinderella, the Chinese Cinderella, the Native American Cinderella, and they specifically were the versions of Cinderella that holistically had grown out of those cultures. They weren't the story just being placed there. They were the individual Cinderella myths or fairy tales of those individual cultures. And I remember having this sort of big revelation of on the one hand sort of being like oh like the version that I love isn't the version and that quickly turned into wow how magical that everybody in the whole world somewhere in their being knows this story and understands it and it sort of transcends even history or you know the craft of storytelling or whatnot and it's something that seems to sit at the very soul of us as human beings and that's what joseph campbell really discovered and he wrote these wonderful books about how these same myths and stories turn up everywhere and there's a sort of a certain number that tend to recycle i believe carl jung who um i'll get to in a second um i believe i'm probably gonna get this wrong there's traditionally like a hundred myths like the the hundred myths that we as a people tend to tell no matter where in the world you're talking about and so these things that we talk about as fairy tales I think most people in the world are most familiar with the Disney version so when we're talking about like Cinderella or Snow White or whatnot we're all in general for the most part latching on to the most common version which now is the Disney version and so all conversations about these stories tend to sort of start and end there and they go well beyond that and much deeper and I think that it's important to acknowledge that and to not take these things that I think are very powerful stories they're they're stories that really like I said seem to sit at the heart of what makes us human and exist outside of you know stories traveling from place to place um it's that that seems to get negated and I think that that's really problematic and that's something that I'm gonna circle back to later when I start talking about the problems that a lot of people have with fairy tales because when we dismiss them because of one element that we as a culture have sort of latched on to I think we're doing ourselves and all generations a disservice because we're cutting ourselves off from these really deep stories that sort of sit in our souls in a way because we're commenting on this one version of them and that's something that makes me very concerned and is something that I, I really think needs to be changed. Now Carl Jung was um, a student of Freud's. I'm probably getting some of this wrong. I'm not. I'm talking very off the cuff. I'm not looking at a history book here. Carl Jung disagreed with a lot of things that Freud had to say and he's the person who sort of boiled down um, the idea of like the hundred myths and breaking down sort of the the specific universal themes. Um, I also had a wonderful acting teacher that when talking about typing and whatnot, you know, the thing that if you listen to my wonderful interview with Sarah Ford, the idea of, you know, being typed as an actor who sort of turned that on its head and reframed it as what makes you unique as an artist and what is sort of the myth or story that sits at the heart of you that is yours that you want to communicate that comes through whatever part that you end up playing and that's it's that's a whole other conversation for another time but I think that that's really powerful is I think that we tend to really latch on to specific stories that we personally feel very rooted in and I find that it's very telling to ask people what their favorite fairy tale or their favorite myth is because it tends to have a, a sort of link to them as a person and the sort of stories that they personally like to tell. Um, the other element with Joseph Campbell is he is the one who really broke down into an actual, like literal diagram, 
the similarities between all stories everywhere. And that's where we get the hero's journey, which you may or may not have heard of. The hero's journey is the root of Star Wars. Um, George Lucas was really influenced by it. And if you look at a lot of really good storytelling, they're all sort of rooted in this um, archetypal hero's journey. Most most fantasy is rooted in it. Um, most myth is rooted in it. All the Marvel movies are rooted in it. Some people take issue because they feel like it can become formulaic. I I don't think that in and of itself it's formulaic. I think it's just a vocabulary for talking about the way in which we as human beings tend to go through change. The whole idea of the hero's journey, which is mapped out in all these stories, it's in some respect, whether it's turned on its head or it's followed very, very strictly, um, can be found in pretty much every story you've ever seen in any medium whatsoever. So the actual beats of the hero's journey are as such. Um, the first beat is generally titled The Ordinary World. It's where we meet our hero. The journey hasn't started yet. A lot of people in screenwriting call this sort of stasis one. It's what is the world now? And the basic idea of this is that there's a, there's a writing term um, that Blake Snyder coined I believe, called stasis equals death, which is if the world stays this way, it equates to death, whether it's like an, an emotional death, a spiritual death or whatnot. And a great obvious example is Cinderella. You know, the beginning is she's basically working as a servant for her stepmother. Things cannot stay as they are. If things stay as they are, it's just awful and horrible and emotionally she will die. The second beat is the call to adventure. It's literally where the adventure starts. It's something that jolts the protagonist out of their comfort zone and is saying you need to go on a journey um, it could be something that they decide to do on their own they could be sent by somebody else they can stumble upon the adventure like the wizard of oz um, but then the next step is the refusal of the call where basically the hero is like no i don't want to do this i i can't i can't do this i i i it's not going to happen. This stage lasts longer, shorter, depending on the story that you're trying to tell. But basically, the hero does not encounter the adventure and immediately go, yay, let's let's go into it. This can sometimes also be disguised. I like to use the example of Legally Blonde, where um, the sort of call to adventure is, I need to go to Harvard and prove that I'm a serious person. And she obviously doesn't question this, but the question then becomes, can she get in? Is this something that she can actually accomplish? So there's always a beat of, is this adventure actually going to happen for whatever reason? The fourth beat is the meeting of the mentor. I think this is probably pretty, pretty obvious. In Star Wars, it would be when Obi-Wan, you know, kind of teams up with Luke. There's always a mentor figure. Harry Potter follows this um, with Dumbledore. This, you know, obviously, I think we're all pretty familiar with these. There's the crossing of the first threshold. This is where the hero enters into the world for the first time in earnest. You know, Dorothy's like, okay, I'm going to go find the wizard. Um, Harry's, I'm going to wizard school. We're now, we're now on the adventure and we're now into the other world. Um, the sixth beat is called Tests, Allies, and Enemies, and it's where we figure out exactly what the hero is going to be tested by and who they have to face. Number seven is called The Approach to the Inmost Cave. It means that they're heading toward the most dangerous spot in whatever this other realm is. We're now getting into the lair of the dragon, we're at the Death Star, um, we're almost at the ultimate goal. And the next beat is called The Ordeal. Um, this is the moment where the hero hits rock bottom. They've maybe faced some challenges in the past, but this is the worst of the worst. And like things have never been worse. This is bad. It's not looking good. The next beat is the reward or the seizing of the sword. We see the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, we start to see the fruits of their labor. Dorothy escapes from the w Wicked Witch. Um, then there's the road back. The story's not quite over. Now the hero has to return to the ordinary world and face whatever dangers are still there. Number 11 is called Resurrection. The final test is met. Um, Luke destroys the Death Star. And the last beat is the return to the world, bringing the knowledge that they've gained along their journey. So that is the basic, very, very generalized structure of what the hero's journey is and this occurs in every story that you've ever heard anywhere there are stories that really play with structure that do not show this overtly but these are these sort of emotional themes that play into it so that's sort of what you know joseph campbell and carl jung then then built upon 
and figured out that this is the same anywhere you go in any culture anywhere, including tribal cultures that have never had any exposure to anybody else. And so there's something about this that tends to just really speak to us as humans and reflect how we go through our lives and how we change. So C.S. Lewis, um, who is a personal hero of mine and who I adore and has written wonderful sort of modern, I don't say modern fairy tales, but has continued this conversation about fairy tales with um, J.R.R. Tolkien, who was his contemporary. Um, C.S. Lewis's hero was George MacDonald, who was also a great writer of fairy stories. And he has this quote speaking about George MacDonald that I would like to read that is really good. And he said, most myths were made in prehistoric times and I suppose not consciously made by individuals at all. But every now and then there occurs in the modern world a genius such as MacDonald who can make such a story. But I do not know how to classify such genius. To call it literary genius seems unsatisfactory since it can coexist with great inferiority in the art of words, nay, since its connection with words at all turns out to be merely external and, in a sense, accidental. Nor can it be fitted into any of the other arts. It begins to look as if there were an art, or a gift, which criticism has largely ignored. It may even be one of the greatest arts, for it produces works which give us, at the first meeting, as much delight and, on prolonged acquaintance, as much wisdom and strength as the works of the greatest poets. It is in some ways more akin to music than to poetry, or at least to most poetry. It goes beyond the expression of things we have already felt. It arouses in us sensations we have never had before, never anticipated having, as though we had broken out of our normal mode of consciousness and possessed joys not promised to our birth. It gets under our skin, hits us at a level deeper than our thoughts or even our passions, troubles oldest certainties till all questions are reopened, and in general shocks us more fully awake than we are for most of our lives. It is a mythopoetic art. And that is exactly the kind of storytelling that I want to talk about. Um, there are different types of stories that fall into this. As I said, I'm talking about stories that are the basis of every story ever told and as such are, are essential when talking about any storytelling medium, especially theater. So this is how I've sort of broken them down. The first category I have is the fairy tale as opposed to fairy stories. Tolkien defines fairy tales in his essay on fairy stories. Um, he says, Fairy contains many things besides elves and fays, and besides dwarves, witches, trolls, giants, or dragons. It holds the seas, the sun, the moon, the sky, and the earth, and all things that are in it, tree and bird, water and stone, wine and bread, and ourselves, mortal men, when we are enchanted. A fairy story is one which touches on or uses fairy, whatever its own main purpose may be, satire, adventure, morality, fantasy. Fairy itself may perhaps be most nearly translated by magic, but it is magic of a peculiar mood and power, at the furthest pull from the vulgar devices of the laborious scientific magician. There is one proviso. If there is any satire present in the tale, one thing must not be made fun of, the magic itself. That must, in the story, be taken seriously, neither laughed at nor explained away. Basically, this is the same thing I was talking about, about C.S. Lewis describing the numinous. Um, it, he describes it as having a strong spiritual quality and the idea that, you know, we talk about poetically the longing of putting on the North Star or riding on the back of the North Wind. And in fairy tales, those things are made manifest and are literally things that can be done um, in order to serve a metaphoric sense of what it means to be human, the things we desire as humans, the things we aspire to. But Harry Potter, for example, I would not put in the realm of a fairy tale or fairy story for that matter. It falls into the magician realm and solidly into the broader fantasy genre. Now there's a lot of overlap. I'm just getting really specific about terms here. So we then have a myth or a legend, which is a traditional story, especially one concerning the early history of a people or explaining some natural or social phenomenon and typically involving supernatural beings or events. A legend is a story that may have had a historical basis but is unsubstantiated, hence why the Arthur stories, as in King Arthur, are considered legends. There is a historical basis for it. I personally think that many Greek myths should be dubbed legends, but that's another argument for another day. On a side note, there are many fairy tales that also potentially have a historical basis, but those are, I don't know. Again, there's a very gray area with certain things to do with this, but the historical basis are in the facts 
of certain people's lives that I'll circle back to later and not necessarily with more of the magical elements to to do with it. Um, Whereas myths and legends sometimes have questions of prophets and soothsayers and whatnot being literal things that historically we have questions about. So then we have what I would dub a fairy story as opposed to a fairy tale. I personally would define a fairy story as fairy tale plus myth. So for example, I would put the Lord of the Rings into this category. It's it's fairy, but it also has a strong root in history, whether it's fabricated or has any potential basis for truth. I also would like to just sort of go on the record and say, when we talk about fairy, most people today have an idea of fairies as like Tinkerbell from Disney's Peter Pan. I love those fairies. I think they're delightful. But the idea of fairy, as in F-A-E-R-I-E, or the world of fae, has its roots in um, more mythic substance and also really has its roots in Celtic mythology. Um, Fairies were not tiny, cute fun pixies, although pixies were um, a mythical being, but rather they were the goddesses and gods of these religions. Um, They were more sort of the way that we think of elves in the Lord of the Rings and in Tolkien's world are more what the world of fairy was when people were thinking about these stories. So they were thinking of it more from that that term um, and that sort of idea of these magical beings. There's a weight to them. There's a mythology around them. Um, Different cultures had different ways of looking at them. But when I talk about fairy and fairy tales, that's more the route that I'm going as opposed to what we think of the way that Disney has sort of defined it. We then have folk tales. Um, Folk tales don't deal with the fantastical in quite the same way. There may be an element or two, but it's more rooted in stories about real people dealing with real world situations. There's rarely a going out into another realm. They often include animals acting with human characteristics, like, for example, Puss in Boots um, would be a great example of this. The Grimm brothers actually had a collection of folk tales that were separate from their fairy tales. A great example of a story that walks the line between fairy and folk is the Pied Piper. Um, I personally would put it in with the folk tales, as I believe did the Grimm brothers as well. Then you have fables, which are short stories typically with animals um, conveying a specific moral. And we most traditionally think of Aesop's fables with this. They're usually very short stories. Um, with anthropomorphized animals and literally at the end of them there will be a rhyming couplet moral of what the story is. And then we have a category that I have invented that until I can come up with a better title for it I am calling modern fairy adjacent fantasy stories. If anybody has a better title for it I would love to know. So as I said this is my own category that comprises the literary genre that evolved from the fairy tale root of the previous decades. Um, Mainly encompasses say Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan, the Oz books. They're not necessarily exploring the numinous. For example, I believe the Narnia Chronicles are exploring the numinous. I don't think that that's the goal of Alice in Wonderland per se, Um, but mainly, namely exploring childhood itself um, and childhood adjacent themes and ideas. Um, I'm just looking that I have a note for myself, speaking of Narnia, that I said I would say that the Narnia series falls into the fairy story category in that it's combining elements of fairy with a unique fairy-rooted mythology and has more in common with the land of Arthur than Wonderland, albeit on a more childlike scale. So, with all that thrown out your direction, I'm going to focus here on fairy tales. Why, you are asking yourselves? Um, partly because I I have the most kinship to them. I feel that I know the most about them. And I think that fairy tales deal with the numinous in a way that others, um, such as fables and a lot of myths, don't always. A lot of times they do, not always. Um, but fairy tales is sort of my personal niche. And I feel much more qualified and excited about talking about them than some of the other categories. So... I would love to give a little background on the history of fairy tales because there's a lot of uh, misinformation out there. Um, I would say misinformation that is rooted in real information, but is not totally accurate. And people tend to bring it out when they start arguing for their personal feelings about fairy tales. Um, And so I just sort of want to set the record straight on some of this stuff. So I want to talk about the origins of fairy tales and what their purpose was. So part of the problem is that not all fairy tales evolved in the same way. There's sort of three different groups of the origin of fairy tales, and I'm specifically talking about in the Western culture. 
I don't know. I, I, I know a lot about fairy tales, what you would define fairy tales in other cultures. I don't know as much about their um, the history of them being written down and disseminated. So I'm going to specifically be focusing more on the Western side of things. And they really fall into the groups of the three most famous writers of fairy tales, which are the Grimm brothers, Pierrot and Anderson. The Grimm Brothers. I wrote an entire play about this, so I know quite a bit about the Grimm Brothers. So the Grimm Brothers I find really interesting because they did not write fairy tales in the way that people think of writing a story, meaning that they didn't sit down and make them up. Basically, the Grimm Brothers lived in Germany during the Napoleonic Wars, and that, again, is a whole podcast in and of itself, but suffice it to say that the French and Prussia were at war for a very, very, very long time. And Germany falls squarely in between the two on the map. And so in order to for one to invade the other, they would have to go through Germany. And every time they would go through Germany, they would conquer Germany. So we're talking here like the 1800s, early to mid 1800s is really when all the stuff went down with the Grimm brothers. It also ends up having a big historical impact that I'll get to in a moment. But basically, every time Germany was conquered, their culture was wiped out. As I mentioned before, their libraries were burned. There are, we basically don't have literature from Germany before a certain period of time, in essence, because um, this was before, you know, a lot of mass publication of things. A lot of times there was one copy in the whole world of a book and it was burned down. And so the the Germans would be taken over and it's like, great, you're French now. And then the Prussians would come in and it's like, great, no, now you're Prussian. And they had no cultural identity of their own. Um, also, at the same time, the German language was not held in as high a status as other languages. And the Grimm brothers, who were two extraordinary brothers who had a great um, interest in linguistics and entomology and and, and cultural heritage basically said, look, our culture is being wiped out. And if somebody doesn't do something soon, um, like the German people will no longer exist. We're, we're just going to be this like hodgepodge of all the other cultures that are constantly taking us over. If somebody doesn't do something to archive who we are as a people, to elevate our language, we're going to be wiped off the face of the earth. And so the Grimm brothers basically started going all around Germany and collecting the stories that everybody was sitting around telling each other that their parents, 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 parents had just been telling for generations. And these stories were rooted in their mythology and their religion. I mean, we have to remember that fairies, dwarves, elves were worshipped as part of religion. They weren't cute characters in a story. Um, but like everything else, those religions had also been basically wiped off the, the map. And a lot of these stories were the only ways that these figures survived and they had sort of, you know, been um, watered down or whatnot, but it's the only way that these gods and goddesses and, and whatnot had survived um, within their culture. Now, these fairy tales were not, as many people say, told to keep children in line. The original fairy tales were not for children at all. They were for the adults um, once the children had gone to bed. And they were extraordinarily dark. I highly recommend that anybody go and read the original Grimm Brothers stories, although even that is a little problematic, which I'll get to in a second. They were not intended for children. They were not intended as morals for children. They were the stories of these people. Some of them potentially had basis in historical fact. There are about three different um, historical incidents that people think might in some ways be the basis for Snow White, um, specifically Margareta von Baldeck. There was a story of a, a noblewoman whose stepmother wanted her to marry somebody that she didn't want to and she was having a relationship with the prince and she was poisoned because it wasn't going to be a politically savvy marriage for the prince. There were stories about a woman who went mad because her mirror contained the silver in her mirror contained mercury and literally made her insane children at the time who were forced to work in the mines were called dwarves because their growth was stunted um, because of the work that they had to do so there are potential historical bases for some of these things but in essence they were the the stories that had been passed down from generation to generation and they were really really dark i mean even the versions that you read now that are published are dark but some of the originals were so dark that the Grimm brothers themselves would not publish them in their original form the truly original version of snow white 
has no stepmother. It's her biological mother. Snow White is seven years old. Um, the Her mother gets really concerned and jealous when her father starts lusting after her and sends her into the forest. There's no prince. The father goes looking for her, finds her, kills the mother, and marries his daughter. And the Grimm brothers wouldn't publish it. So that sort of accounts for things that I find fascinating. I don't know if anybody else really does, but there are plot holes in the Snow White we know of today. For example, where did the king go? In all versions, the king just disappears out of the story, and a lot of adaptations have things like he went off to the Crusades and died, and they sort of have to explain it away. But the Grimm brothers didn't really fix the plot holes when they changed some of these stories. And they were then left with a, a bit of a conundrum because they were going all around their country and collecting these stories. And like Joseph Campbell discovered many a moon later, um, these same stories were turning up in all of these different places, but with slight variations to them. And so they felt that they needed to edit all of them down into sort of one version that contained the most general versions of the story. So they they did not make up the story. They did not write it um, themselves, but they did edit it. And they went through several different editions and printings of their fairy tales. And as it went on, things continued to be edited and changed. Um, and there was talk about making it more palatable for children. And there was controversy between the brothers about that. Um, the, the argument between we need to keep these as pure as they possibly can be because the goal is to preserve our German culture versus we also need to survive and make a living. So we need to make them more family friendly. So there's still some controversy about that. Uh, what I find really interesting is the Grimm brothers were also very political and they were very active in trying to get Germany to unify as a country. Germany at the time was a collection of city-states. Each city-state had their own rulers and one of the reasons they kept getting conquered by these other countries was because they had no way of unifying together. And the Grimm brothers were really active in unifying Germany into a single country, which they finally ultimately did. The Napoleonic Wars ended. And they also were responsible for writing the first... Um, primary German dictionary that's the German equivalent of like the Merriam-Webster dictionary and elevating the German language to, to, to be like no we have our origins and all these very important um, you know historical roots and we need to be treated with the same care as any other language. Then World War One happened and in World War One Germany was completely decimated yet again and the interesting thing is when you start to really learn the history of what Germany had gone through you start to understand how Nazism ended up rising in the country. Not meaning, I am not, <laughs> I'm not endorsing it in any means. There, Nazism is one of the most horrific things that has ever happened in the world and needs to be like wiped off the face of the earth. But basically, they were coming out of the Napoleonic Wars where their culture had been decimated. They'd been almost decimated again in World War I. And they finally reached a breaking point of, we are really sick and tired of being wiped off the map. And they went the completely opposite direction of, we are going to celebrate how wonderful and fantastic and important and special we are. And we're going to do the same thing to others that was done to us and wipe them off the face of the planet because we are going to protect our culture at all costs. And then clearly went to a really horrific extreme. There is a lot of anti-Semitism in the Grimm Brothers stories. Um, there is one tale in specifically about a Jewish man that is really difficult to read. Um, so there is, I'm not saying that there's anti-Semitism in all of their stories. It is in a couple of their stories. It breaks my heart that, that um, Adolf Hitler said that the Grimm Brothers collection of fairy tales was one of the things that every good German home should have. It became this pinnacle of celebrating their heritage. I think that at the beginning, in a lot of ways, it came out of a, um, a noble place of wanting to not be wiped off the face of the map and clearly then swung in a really horrific direction. That's getting a little off topic. I just find it really interesting. Um, that's all to say, I think that most of the fairy tales have nothing to do with um, any of that whatsoever and that I highly recommend that people read them because I think that it's important to see what these stories actually say because we've really gotten enmeshed in what the Disney stories are, and it's a very, very different thing. So the second category of fairy tales is the Perrault fairy tales. Um, Charles Perrault. He is sort of at a crosshairs between the Grimm brothers and what Hans Christian Andersen would end up doing. Um, Charles Perrault was French, and he 
took a lot of stories that were told around, you know, the French countryside and within the French, you know, population. But whereas the Grimm brothers' goal was to preserve their heritage and culture, Perrault wanted to entertain the aristocracy. So he took these stories and deliberately edited them and messed with them to be entertaining for the aristocracy. And that's who his books were published for. So a lot of his fairy tales tend to focus on kings and queens and princes and princesses. Um, I find it really interesting that a lot of the same stories show up in the Grimm Brothers stories and Perrault's stories, because obviously these were tales of the people that everybody was telling, but there are big differences between them. Sleeping Beauty is one that shows up in both. Um, that's where we get the two different names for Sleeping Beauty, Aurora and Briar Rose. But there's there's really interesting differences in them. The third category is Hans Christian Andersen, and I have a very special place in my heart for Hans Christian Andersen, um, especially because he is the one of the three sort of triune of fairy tale creators who completely made up his stories from scratch. He did not go around collecting tales. Um, he made them up out of his own head. I think one of the most difficult things to do is to write an original fairy tale that feels like a fairy tale that could sit on the shelf with all the fairy tales that we know and love. Um, so he was writing them completely holistically, obviously coming from this great history. But there are differences to his stories. I think that you can sort of tell the stamp of Anderson right away. And one of them is that basically none of his stories have a happy ending. I think like the Ugly Duckling may be the exception. There's a lot of death in his stories um, as the ending point. There is a lot of spirituality and I would argue elements of the numinous in what he's talking about through his tales. But The Little Mermaid, I think, is one that needs to be touched on. Obviously, I did a whole podcast with Chris Peterson about the Disney movie of The Little Mermaid. But the original story of The Little Mermaid is my favorite story ever. It's very different than the version that we think of. To really quickly sum it up, Anderson was working from the mythology surrounding mermaids and sirens, who traditionally, although they are very different from culture to culture, but traditionally were mythic like demigoddesses who lived in the sea who had beautiful voices that would lure sailors to their deaths they show up in um, the odyssey with odysseus they're not the most favorable figures toward human and sailors all the time you get different versions of them the selkies in irish mythology are a lot more friendly but traditionally the sirens are sort of what anderson was working with and so instantly you get a, a protagonist who is very different from that entire world not only does she not want to lure sailors to their death she wants to be a human and she doesn't just want to be a human she wants to be a human because in the mythology anderson has created mer people live for 300 years and then when they die they turn into sea foam and just cease to exist whereas human beings have immortal souls and can go to heaven and can be with god and literally connected with the numinous and the little mermaid wants an immortal soul and that is why she's fascinated with the human world. She saves a sailor for drown from drowning, which is completely antithetical to what her entire culture is sort of about. And she then finds out from her grandmother that if a human falls in love with a mermaid and marries her, that when two become one, their soul will be shared with the mermaid and they will gain an immortal soul. That's why she's interested in being with the prince. She goes to the Sea Witch. The Sea Witch is not the antagonist of the story. The Sea Witch is just sort of like, hey, I have magical powers. I think this is a really terrible idea. I don't make the rules of magic. I really think that you need to go home. The Little Mermaid's like, no. And she's like, okay, I warned you. She cuts out the Little Mermaid's tongue as payment. And she gives her a potion that when she drinks it, her tail will split into two legs. And it will feel like a knife is cutting her in half. Every time she takes a step, it'll feel like as, like she's stepping on sharp knives. And she will be a human um, as forever until the prince marries somebody else. And the morning after he marries someone else, her heart will break. She'll turn into sea foam and cease to exist. So she goes up on shore. She meets the prince. Really, the prince is the antagonist in this whole thing. He treats her kind of like a pet. She has to like sleep outside his door. And then the prince marries another princess and that night, um, the, the Little Mermaid knows that she's going to die. And her sisters show up and they say that they've been to the Sea Witch and they've traded their hair in exchange for a knife where if the Little Mermaid kills the prince and his blood splashes on her legs, she can turn back into a human and go home. And she's about to do it and she realizes that she can't. 
and she flings herself into the ocean where she believes she's going to die. But instead of dying because she was so good in life, this is the weirdest tag to the end of a story, she becomes sort of a guardian angel called a daughter of the air, and she has the chance to earn an immortal soul. So that was the original story. Anderson was an, a very interesting character, and how he came to write the story I find fascinating. Anderson was a very socially awkward person. People would literally cross to the other side of the street to avoid encountering him. His life was dotted with these epic, unrequited loves. He had a great love for the famous opera singer Jenny Lind, who did not return his love. He wrote the fairy tale The Nightingale for her, and she was then dubbed the Swedish Nightingale. Some people think that she was the basis for the Snow Queen and the fairy tale The Snow Queen, that he was basically, in a way, calling her an ice bitch when, excuse my language, when um, she wouldn't reciprocate his love. But the Snow Queen also came about because Anderson's father died when he was very young and his mother, in an attempt to try to be kind in an explanation of what happened to her fa his father, said that, oh, the Snow Queen came and took him away. And so for the rest of his life, he was terrified of this figure of the Snow Queen who brought about death. Um, the Little Mermaid allegedly came about because it is widely suspected that Hans had a deep unrequited love for his foster brother, Edvard. We don't know if Hans Christian Andersen was gay, if he was bi. We don't know um, what the orientation or feelings of Edvard were. All we do know is that Edvard um, married a woman. And it's believed that Anderson wrote The Little Mermaid in response to that, where Anderson himself was the mermaid, Edvard was the prince, and this woman that he married was the princess. And so it can then become an analogy for somebody who's gay and feels that they can't express themselves in their society and can't be themselves. And it has since become an analogy for anybody who, who feels like they don't fit in and doesn't, doesn't fit in their own skin and wants to belong to sort of a different world. But they, his stories fit in very much with the fairy tale canon at large, although they definitely have a sort of specific color and um, stamp to them. One of the defining characteristics, I think, of fairy tales is that they show in a metaphoric way, which is something I want to touch on later because I think that one of the difficulties with our culture is we have stopped viewing and reading stories with a metaphoric eye. I'll get back to this later, but we see it a lot with a lot of online people, when they start analyzing, like, again, going back to Disney movies and stuff and plot holes, and we see Disney sort of trying to rectify all these plot holes in their um, live action movies and then like making things worse of we need a logical explanation for everything. And fairy tales very much live in a world of metaphor. And so through this view of metaphor, they show how the world is. There's a great quote that Neil Gaiman wrote, although he attributed it to G.K. Chesterton, which is, fairy tales are more than true, not because they tell us that dragons exist, but because they tell us that dragons can be beaten. And also, this is something that I, I want to, again, circle back to later. So many things we're circling around, all the circles, is that fairy tales deal with how we deep down feel the world ought to be. It's a world where things are called by the right names, where who you are on the inside is reflected on the outside. It exists in an, in an archetypal world, not a stereotypical world. There's a big difference between stereotype and archetype, but it's, I think it shows us in a way how we feel somewhere deep in us the world was meant to be, where beauty on the inside is reflected on the outside um, and, and whatnot. So I think that those are two very powerful things about fairy tales in general. Now, fairy tales have changed throughout the ages, and this is where we get sort of a lot of the myths of how fairy tales were originally written. And I believe how fairy tales have changed very much reflects how our culture, especially um, Western and non-tribal cultures, have changed um, from storytelling society. So how they actually changed. There were really, in Western culture, two huge delineating moments for this. The first was the Victorian era, which is sort of right at the end of when we're talking about the Grimm brothers. It's, you know, Hans Christian, right at the tail end of Hans Christian Andersen writing. We're starting to get into the era of Alice in Wonderland being written. Um, but basically, there was a real huge popularity in fairy tales. It was gaining popularity with the publishing of the Grimm brothers' writings and Andersen's writings. Everybody was reading them. It just hit a zeitgeist in the culture. 
But as the Victorian era moved on, fairy tales started to fall out of popularity, just as all literary genres sort of ebb and flow with their popularity. And they started getting combined with other things. In general, the, the basic, the, a lot of people say that when something starts, to, when a literary work starts to fall out of fashion, it inevitably ends up in the nursery. I don't know if that's always true, but it definitely was true with fairy tales. Um, fairy tales were not intended for children. They were very dark. They were entertaining for adults. But somehow they found their way to the nursery, and that meant that fairy tales started to be dubbed children's fair. At the same time, the Victorian era, a lot of people have said, invented childhood. There was this sort of, it was it was the first time that childhood was acknowledged as a thing to be celebrated in a way. Before then, um, children were sort of viewed as mini adults, and they had to just sort of be kept in line and put to work as quickly as possible. The Victorian era started to glorify and idealize childhood as this you know, beautiful state of innocence that we all wish that we could return to. So literature for children started to be written for the first time. And one of the most popular forms of this was morality tales for children. And so the morality tales end up combining with other types of fiction. And so on the one hand, you get this extreme of morality tales. On the other hand, you get something like Alice in Wonderland that's, that is very whimsical, very much rooted sort of in how children think, although there are other analogies, it's very much a social commentary as well. But they sort of got combined with fairy tales. And because fairy tales were really popular, different editors started to publish new versions and they would literally change them. They would change the stories, they would make them more palatable. Some editions even directly stuck morals on the end of them so that Little Red Riding Hood, now the only reason for it became don't don't talk to strangers and don't take things from strangers. And that was now the only reason for it. And a lot of the other deeper psychological elements of, you know, um, burgeoning sexuality and our connection to the animus and whatnot started to get left by the wayside. And the only thing that was there now was this is a morality tale for children because that's what it is because it's not in fashion with adults anymore. And the second big change in history was Disney. Um, and I don't think people really realize how much Disney really changed these fairy tales because the Disney versions are the only versions that a lot of people know. One of the things that I love to point out is that Disney is basically responsible for the invention of True Love's Kiss. Um, True Love's Kiss is not a mainstay of these original stories. Snow White, for example, in the original Grimm's version, was not woken up by True Love's Kiss. The prince didn't kiss her at all. The prince saw her, thought she was so beautiful that he couldn't bear to be without her, and wanted her taken, glass casket and all, back to his palace. And so they were carrying her in her glass coffin. The coffin got dropped, and when it got dropped, the piece of poison apple got dislodged from her throat, and she woke up. In the original version of Sleeping Beauty, a prince does climb in and finds her, um, does not kiss her, is so taken with her that he decides to rape her, and then leaves, and she gets pregnant, and while still asleep, gives birth to twins, who, when they are born, are then starving, so they start sucking on their mother's finger. When they suck on their mother's finger, the piece of poisoned flax from the spinning wheel comes out. She wakes up just in time for the prince to come back for round two, and he's like, oh, you're awake. I guess you're my wife now. And the whole second half of the story is a completely unrelated thing about how he takes her home. He has an ogre for a mother who tries to kill her and the children, and she has to kill her mother-in-law. Disney is the one who really... I, I won't say that True Love's Kiss does not exist anywhere prior to Disney, but it's really hard to find. Disney's the one who really made that the final stamp on all of those stories. And they also softened a lot of the stories because their market was different. They were making these stories for children and for families in an animated medium, and they're responsible for changing a lot of things. Now, the thing is, I don't have a problem with changing fairy tales. I think the adaptation of stories is one of the hallmarks of fairy tales and myths. And I think it's something to celebrate. And I think that the 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 way that they can take on so many forms is a wonderful thing. And each version reveals something new and wonderful within the framework of it. That I find fairy tales are sort of like prisms where there's a million different things that you can find and discover. And every time you read it, you sort of find the thing that most resonates with you in that moment, which is why you can read them a million times. What I do have a problem with is when a version then wipes kind of all others off the map. And that's kind of what happened with Disney because 
that's the version that we know. And I was the weird child who then read her way through the entire fairy tale section of the library. But most people don't do that. And so all these other colors and gradations end up getting completely dismissed. And that transitions sort of to how storytelling exists today. And on the one hand, I think it's really exciting because we have more storytelling means than ever before. You can go on YouTube and you can find the different versions of these fairy tales from most cultures around the world. We have access to every book we could ever imagine. We have access. Um, I, I have been able to watch, I, I believe, as much as I can, every film version of every fairy tale that one can get their hands on that's out there for public consumption. And I think that's wonderful. On the flip side, we're no longer a storytelling culture. We consume a lot of media, um, but the spectacle value has kind of taken over and it's sort of more about entertainment as opposed to storytelling. Now, storytelling is entertainment, but I'm specifically meaning we've sort of gone to an entertainment of a, a spectacle entertainment, not just entertainment in all its very wide forms. For example, I love graphic novels, I love comic books, we're now being inundated with um, superhero movies, all of which are kind of exactly the same. They're all very much formulaic. They're all sort of telling the same story over and over again. And I would guess for the majority of people, the draw in going to see it is more along the lines of the special effects, getting to see your favorite character, getting to see the really cool things they're doing on screen, and not so much how your heart and soul are going to be deeply impacted by the story. Not to say that that doesn't happen. I just mean that it's sort of a shift that we've gone through. And along with that, we've, in a way, I think in, as a general culture, lost in some ways the ability to read and understand stories from a metaphoric point of view with a look toward the numinous and how it talks about us being human beings. Um, we don't tend to read stories metaphorically. We tend to take them literally at face value. And I think that that's extremely problematic. An analogy that came to my mind, this is unbelievably controversial. I can't believe I'm about to say this, but I'm using it as a metaphoric example here, so take of it what you will, biblical scholars um, debate with the different books of the Bible which of them were meant literally as historical fact and which of them are more poetic in nature. Um, for example, um, Tim Keller, the wonderful pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian, says that the beginning of Genesis about the world being created in seven days, based on the historical knowledge that he has, he believes is meant to poetically express something inexpressible, which is the way that the universe and the earth and human beings were created. It's written in a different way than other books in the Bible where it that, that are meant to be very historically, like this is historically exactly what happened and every word of this is meant to be taken as truth. Whereas he feels that perhaps the beginning of Genesis is meant to be the way a poet would sing about the creation of the universe, that the heart of it is true. The details of it are not meant to necessarily be taken as literally fact, as in created the world in seven days might be a beautiful metaphoric symbol as opposed to according to the calendar that we in Western culture use today and a day being 24 hours, seven of those days were what created the universe. Again, this is very controversial. I'm not trying to impose this view on anything. I meant to say that in everything that we look at and read, some of it is meant to be taken factually. For example, when we take up a historical account of, say, World War II, we're anticipating that that is going to be historical and we are reading a book of facts. Other things are meant to be written from a poetic sensibility that are meant to stir the numinous in us, that are meant to express things that cannot be expressed. And we can't always do that with facts and figures. This circles back to the idea of Christ teaching in parables. Um, for example, the, um, the parable where there was a woman who was going to be stoned for adultery. He could have stood there and said, nobody should do this because even though it's the law, you know, morally we should forgive. That probably wouldn't really deeply stir the hearts and souls of the people watching. It would be a commandment. It would not allow people's souls to resonate with the deeper truth. Instead, he says, let he among you who is without sin cast the first stone, which I'm not saying that's 
especially a parable. It's not necessarily a story, but it is a, it's a poetic statement. It's a poetic statement that allows for empathy and it allows a deeper idea to resonate with, within yourself. Um, you know, the stories of the um, prodigal son is, is a brilliant one, but the idea that stories that are metaphoric can touch you and explain deeper truths to you in a way that facts can't. And I feel that we have sort of stopped being able to read poetically as a culture. And I think that has very deeply affected our view of stories in general and about fairy tales and about the way that we come to all new stories that we examine. So I'm going to leave it there for now. And I'm going to do a part two of this where I'm going to specifically attack um, and discuss the criticisms that people have of fairy tales and stories. And I want to start to take them apart and really analyze them because I find that it really affects the, the, the stories that people tend to read, the, the stories people tend to share with their children, um, and their general feelings toward things that are out there. And I feel that that tends to happen for each individual personally for various reasons, and we have not really had a broad discussion collectively about it. So that's what I'm going to do next time. So thank you all so much for tuning in. Um, this is Stage Directions. As I said, I'm Ashley Griffin, your theatrical Hermione Granger, and feel free to check out my website, ashleygriffinofficial.com, and check me out on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. I'm either Ashley Griffin Official or Ashley J. Griffin on all of those. And let me know what you would like me to talk about in the future and if you have any specific questions, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>